Thanks, Steph. Morning, everyone. Morning. Uh, I am so encouraged often by just the, the encouragement that I get from my fellow elders. I was sitting down there now, and uh, don't think I'm not going to rip you out for it. Like, uh, sitting down there now, and Marcus says to me, you know, John 6, John 6 is one of my favorite passages. I have so, much to, so many questions about the bread of life. No pressure at all, just before you get up. But, and he did that on purpose. He's a slabber. But anyway, uh, good to be with you this morning in John 6 again. I want to start off by, we're carrying on actually with the theme of India. By no uh, purpose of mine really, to be honest. It j- just seemed fitting to start today. But the reality is in our world... In the world that we live in, people go to great lengths and make great sacrifices to cleanse their consciences, to remove uh, the guilt of sin. And one such example of this actually does come from India, um, and in particular, the Ganges River and the beliefs that people have about the Ganges River and, and cleansing of their sin. The Ganges River itself is 1,569 miles long. It flows through the northern and northern eastern area of India, eventually winding its way to the Bay of Bengal. Every year for centuries, millions of Hindus come to the Indian city of Hadwar on the banks of the Ganges to bathe in the waters of this river. In spite of the fact that the Ganges River is widely regarded as the singly most polluted river in the world, Hindus believe its waters are purifying. They wash away their sins in the waters. Not just present sins, but in sins of of lifetimes to come is what they believe. There are other numerous practices that the Hindus have where they believe in the, that they are obtaining forgiveness of sins. Uh, when missionary William Carey arrived in India in the late 1700s, he was shocked by what the Hindus were willing to do to be cleansed of their guilt. One day in 1794, Carey and fellow missionary John Thomas were traveling uh, near Malda, India, when they came upon a basket hanging on a tree. And what they found inside that basket shocked them. It was a little child who had been left there by its mother, thinking that she somehow, by offering her child to nature and letting it just whatever happened, happen, she thought that that would somehow release her from this karma cycle of bad things happening to her in this life and in the next. People with leprosy were frequently thrown into a pit and burned to death because they believed that a violent death brought purity. Carrie discovered also that that when 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 a husband died, the widow, in custom, the custom was that the widow be tied to the, to the fire where the husband was, a, le- a leprosy, a, le- a leper husband was, was going to be burned and the widow was tied to that fire so that she too would be burned to death. 
because they thought this would bring purity. A mere natural death by disease results in four successive rebirths, is what they believe, as a leper. People are willing to do many, many things, go to great, great lengths to ease their conscience and to cleanse them of the guilt of sin. Hindu women, both now, then and now, have been known to pray to the goddess of the Ganges River, pledging that if she were, she were blessed with two children, she would sacrifice one of them to the river. Carrie witnessed this, where he was told a story of a woman who went into the river to sacrifice one of her children, stood there for a period of time with the infant in her arms, wailing through the infant into the river, and watched it float away. Later, Carrie learned of this story, spoke with the woman, told her the gospel. And what was her response? I wish you had have come sooner. My child would still be alive. These are actually harrowing stories of what people will do to ease their conscience and cleanse their guilt of sin. And I'm sorry for starting with such distressing and, and, and painful images, but we are somewhat ignorant in the West to these things. We like to bury our heads in the sand and believe that these things don't actually happen when they're in fact happening today. That's the reality. And when you hear stories like that of the lengths that people will go to, the sacrifices people will make, and you come across verses like John six forty-seven, it reiterates the beauty of the gospel. Listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. End of. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, the response to that, the, the, the response to that by many around the world is, are you seriously telling me that that's all there is to it? Yes. That's all there is to it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, you and I cringe somewhat and shirk back from the realities that we see in places like India, where people go to great lengths and make great sacrifices to cleanse their sin. And we cringe at that, and we think that, that we would never do things like that. We're so much more sophisticated than that. But the reality is for us in the Western world and in here in Northern Ireland and we're, we're here in Rutherford and wherever you're from, the reality is that we just do it differently. And in fact, we have come up with a lot more sophisticated ways to cleanse our conscience, to, 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 to make ourselves feel better about our sin. Some people cleanse their consciences and ease their guilt by living up the expectations that others put on them. Perhaps parents. We think if we can just live up to this expectation, then things will go all right. Others seek forgiveness by, by putting more money in the offering plate. If we can just do that, then that'll tip the scales in our favor and, and, and we will be forgiven. 
Others strive for forgiveness by avoidance. And what I mean by that is we just avoid the big sins. So we don't commit adultery, or we don't steal, or we don't murder. And and if we don't do those things, then we'll be okay. Many in the church faithfully observe religious ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, convinced that that is what does it. There are those whose confidence in eternal life is based on the, some, something like the fact that they've never taken the Lord's name in vain. Alan Wilson, I think it was Alan, said the big sins in the church used to be uh, drinking, smoking, and dancing. If you avoided those things, then you were doing well. We just do it differently. But I want to bring us back this morning to the reality of the gospel, and the reality of the gospel is this. Whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. None of those things will bring forgiveness. None of those things will ease the conscience. None of those things will cleanse the guilt that we have. And so we come today to today's passage, and we clearly see Jesus has this large crowd still following him. And if you're a note taker, I have three simple, really three very, very simple points this morning. And the three points are this. The problem is hunger. This is the first point. The problem is hunger. And we clearly see, and I, have, I unfortunately don't have time to unpack all of what is in these verses this morning. And so, let me just be really, really simple and break it down into these three points this morning. Verse 35, 36, Jesus says to a large crowd that are listening to him, I am the bread of life. I am the one who truly feeds you so that you have life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. See, the problem for the human heart is hunger. And what we really need, what we really need, and Jesus says, you will never hunger and you will never thirst if you come to me. And here's the reality. Jesus clearly states this to a crowd and they don't come to him. They don't come to him. At the start of John 6, Jesus has over, we, we know well over, 5,000. We, we, we know that he fed the 5,000 people, and we know probably there was, more, there was closer to 20,000 people. Jesus has 20,000 people following him at the beginning of John 6. By the end, he has 11. And they are less than enthusiastic. <laughs> Jesus is beginning to lay out for us what it means to follow him and what it actually means to be a disciple and how radical it is and even how offensive it was. The crowd have followed Jesus around the lake. And we read in verse 15, wanting to make Jesus king by force. When they catch up with him, he's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. 
and their motivation for following him is pretty self-explanatory. You see it there in verse 26. They wanted to be fed. They wanted to be fed. They had the scent of a free lunch in their nose. And people's desire for a free lunch hasn't changed, seemingly, in over 2,000 years. Uh, People will go where there's free food. That's just a reality. And so what they say is, we'll follow him. He's this guy that's handing out the free meals. We'll follow him. And then in verse 30, they try to theologically gloss over it by by quoting Moses or going to Moses. Because Moses was obviously from good and from God because God gave him food from heaven to feed the people. and, And we're expecting you, Jesus, to do the same. We want food to fill our bellies. That's what we want. That's what we're after. Come on, Jesus. You've done it. We saw you do it before. Give us more of the same. And when Jesus declines, they're pretty direct in verse 34. Give us bread. Give us bread. These people have started to follow Jesus, not because they want more of Jesus, but because they want their bellies filled. They're hungry. And so Jesus is starting from this time on to correct their wrong thinking about who he is. And they don't like it. He starts in verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You see, they had witnessed the feeding miracle. They had witnessed the feeding of the 5,000, but they, didn't, they still didn't get it. They didn't get who Jesus was. All they saw was bread. All they saw what was in front of their eyes. They didn't understand who Jesus was claiming to be. They didn't understand that he was coming to be the Savior of the world. All they wanted was what he could give them. They are religious consumers. They are religious consumers. And I wonder, does that describe some of us in here today? Religious consumers. You come here You enjoy what you get. If the music's good, you enjoy it. If I can make some sort of coherent sounding message for half an hour, you might get something out of that and you enjoy it. Maybe even hearing the Bible taught stimulates you. But the reality is you're here to consume These people were here, these people were following Jesus to consume what he offered. And there's a real danger for us. There is a massive danger for us in the church in the 21st century to become religious consumers. To just shop like we're going to Tesco's or Asda or wherever. And you can, you can just go on this. And you can Google whoever you want to Google 
and you can listen whatever you want to listen, and your itching ears will find what your itching ears want to hear. And we can go on, I can go on Amazon Music and I can type in, you know, City of Light, and I can go on there and, I can, and it's all good stuff, and I can consume, and I can consume, and I can consume. But do I want Jesus? Do I want Jesus? These people just wanted to consume. Their problem was hunger, and they were trying to fill it with bread. But they didn't know what they were hungering for, and they were hungering for Jesus. And he is the only one that can satisfy that hunger. But they were missing the point, and we often miss the point because we think we're going to satisfy the hunger we have for Jesus by consuming. By consuming whatever sermons you want to hear, by consuming whatever music you want to hear. And we'll never fill that hunger that way. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Come to me, and you'll never hunger, and you'll never thirst. So what's the problem here? What's the problem? The problem is hunger. What's the problem for us? Our problem is hunger. We try to feed ourselves in so many different ways, and Jesus is all the while standing there saying, come to me, come to me. Come to me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes on me has eternal life. So the problem is hunger. The solution, Jesus. My second point, the problem is hunger, the solution is Jesus. Really interesting what they ask, isn't it? They want to know what to do. What can we do? How can we, how can we have this thing that you're talking about? Tell us what to do and we'll just do it. And we are often like that. Just tell us the, the boxes that we need to tick and we'll tick the boxes and that'll be us. So <laughs> you say, you know, we have to serve. So give me a box to tick and I'll, I'll, t- I'll tick that box and that'll be me done. And Jesus' answer is this. The works of God are what? Believe on me. That is not what a Jew wanted to hear. A Jew wanted to hear, listen, I know the commandments. We've had this thing going on between us and God for a long, long time. Where, So we've turned it into this. He didn't really mean it like this, but we've turned it into this where we scratch his back and he scratches ours. So if we just keep the commandments and do what he tells us, he will then bless us. And Jesus says, it's not how it works with me. That's not how it works with me. And this is a shock to them. They would have expected, a Jew would have expected to hear, obey the commandments. Keep the commandments. That's the works of God. And as a people, the Jews had, had, had got into this habit of assuming that, that if they just ticked the box, God would bless them. And there were many times, of course, where we know that the Jews didn't tick the box and they didn't keep the commandments and, and, and then they, forf- they forfeited God's blessing. We know that. But this is the way it worked. This is the way it worked. 
We keep the commandments. God blesses us. And Jesus comes in and says, believe on me. That's the works of God. I think this explains the reason why they're asking the question here. And what they're really saying is, what do we have to do for you, Jesus, so that you will give us bread? What do we have to do? If we obey the commandments, will you give us bread? These people knew that it was a two-way covenant in the Old Testament. They knew the system. And that's what they were expecting. And Jesus says, you don't have to do anything. Anything. You believe in the one that God sent me. And he's going to say much more about this throughout John. But what we're witnessing here when Jesus says the works of God are this, believe on me. What we're witnessing here is the actual end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant. That's what we're seeing. Jesus is saying the old covenant is gone, the new covenant is here. And old covenant people, old covenant Jews were like, what do you mean? What about all the sacrificial system? What about, what about the temple? What about our sacrifices so many times a year? What, what, you're saying all that's gone? Jesus is like, yep. Yep. What about all the religious paraphernalia that we've gathered up over the centuries? What about all of that? Gone. Jesus blows their expectations out of the water. When they say to Jesus, what are the works of God that we do? And he says, believe on me. That just shatters every expectation that they have. That's why Partly, he goes from 5,000, 20,000 people to 11 very, very quickly. He shatters people's expectations all the time. Jesus says, the works, are God, the works of God are this. Believe on me. I'm here. So, we have a hunger problem. And we all have a hunger problem. We're all hungering after Jesus. And we all fill it with, or try to feed it with all sorts of things. We have the solution, Jesus, the bread of life. And I'm going to ask you today, are you feeding on the bread of life? Or are you trying to fill it with so many other things that you're actually missing Jesus? I'm going to say a really dangerous thing, right, for a pastor to say, John Nixon's going to have my life, right? See your service in Cornerstone. It doesn't add one jot to your salvation. Not one. Now, he's freaking out about rotas and stuff right now, but... And I'm also a wee bit. <laughs> but... Hear that today. What you do for Jesus is nowhere near, nowhere near, not on the same planet as much as how you feed on Jesus. How you feed on Jesus. How much time are you spending with Jesus? 
How much time are you spending with Jesus? Jesus says, believe on me. And we're all running around doing stuff. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes on me will have eternal life. What does he mean by believe? Just have some uh, assent, you know, theoretical assent. Did you know he means put everything on him? Get to know him, get to love him, get to treasure him. Be in love with Jesus. How much time are you spending with Jesus? He's the solution. He's the solution. The problem is hunger. Jesus is the solution. Two things we see. Third thing, final thing we see. It's this. The promise is, hunger's the problem, Jesus is the solution, the promise is assurance. The promise is assurance. This is an issue. What we we then see is Jesus has posed the problem, he lets us see what the problem is, he gives us the solution, which is himself, and then he makes a promise, and the promise is this. And I want you to hear this today. Please, I need you to hear this. Because these are, this single verse, this single verse could be the difference in your Christian walk. And I, I, don't under, I don't understate that. This could be the difference. This verse of Scripture could be the difference by the way that you live the rest of your life if you hear it now. He says this, All that the Father gives to me comes to me. Right? And just, just as a matter of side, Marcus will get on to this more next week, but just as a matter of side, there's no, like, there's no question about that, by the way. There's no, some might come, some might not. Nope. Jesus is pretty clear. All that the Father gives to me comes to me. Right? That's clear. And then he says this, and this is the bit some of you need to hear. And then those that come, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. That verse, in and of itself, is the greatest, the greatest assurance of salvation that you ever need. That you ever need. Jesus says, all those who come to me, and all the Father gives to me will come to me. Fact. And everyone who comes to me, I will never cast them out. Assurance of salvation is a real issue, and it's a real issue for some of you. Some of you doubt whether you're even a child of God. Some of you doubt whether you're not, you're saved. Some of you doubt whether you have actually come to Jesus. And there are many, many reasons. In my experience, there are many, many reasons why we have those doubts. One of the biggest, the biggest one, is yourself. The biggest doubt that you have for you coming to Jesus or not, and while you fret, I don't know about you, but, but I know people do, fret over whether they've actually come to Jesus, and the biggest reason for that is yourself and, and your sin. Because if you have any self-awareness at all, you will realize that you sin. 
And you think to yourself, oh no, there's definitely no way I could be a believer. There's no way I could be a child of God. There's no way I could be a son or a daughter of the king if I continue to do X, Y, or Z. That's simply not true. It's simply not true. Some of you doubt whether you actually came to Jesus or not, or some of you doubt whether you're actually saved or not because there was no light show when it happened. For some of you, your story of faith, your coming to Jesus, was a process rather than that. And you you doubt your own story. You doubt whether you've come to Jesus or not. Another reason why I we can doubt whether we've come to Jesus or not. And this is one of the saddest ones for me, is suffering. You look at the suffering in your life and you think to yourself, well, if I come to Jesus and this is what's going on, how can that be right? The answer to that one is, why would it not be right? And I want this verse this morning, this single verse, to penetrate your heart so much that you walk out of here through the power of the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit taking this verse of Scripture and penetrating your heart and and putting it so deep down in your heart that you are changed from this point on. And there is no doubt in your mind that you've come to Jesus. I want it to be a real source of encouragement. I want it to be a rest for you today, as fallen as you are. And you are fallen. As fallen as I am, and I am fallen. As broken as you are, as broken as I am, as weary as you are, as weary as I am. I want you to hear this. If you've come to Jesus, you are held in his palm. You need to hear that. And you need to dwell on that. And you need to glory in that fact alone. You sinner. (laughs) Me, a sinner. When God called us, he saw us. He knew that you'd be sitting here today. He knew the sin in your heart. He knew what your life would look like. And yet he loved you and called you. And you came and he holds. You don't hold yourself. And some of you need to hear that desperately this morning. And I pray by the power of the Spirit of God that you would know that today. You are held in all of life circumstances, in all the crap, you are held. And he loves you. Most of us come in here this morning under-encouraged, weary, tired, Most of us come in fed up. Am I wrong? No. Am I gauging it right? Yeah, I am. Good. (laughs) I want us to leave with the assurance that our God loves us, cares for us, holds us in our hearts.
And you might leave still weary. You might leave still fed up. But at least you know that. At least you know that. Let me pray first. Father, it is amazing that sinners like us can know you simply by believing in your Son. Those verses keep coming back to me week after week lately. I believe, help my unbelief. Father, for those in here this morning who are struggling with believing, I pray that your Holy Spirit would now come and just comfort their souls. Help them to believe. Help us to put everything on your Son. Help us not to be religious consumers. None of it matters. Jesus matters. Feasting on Him matters. Help us to love Jesus more. When we pray in his name, amen. So as we, we think about communion and we think about the love that God has for us, just think about this. What does the Bible tell us? Who loved who first? Who loved who first? God loved us first. Yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so just as we think about communion, as we think about Jesus, the love that he had for us, the love that he has for us, the love that he will have for us. His body broken, his blood shed, the greatest sacrifice of all. Let's feast on him today. Remembering his body broken through the bread, remembering his blood shed through the cup. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, think about why that would be. He loves you. Think about where you stand with God. Think about are you a religious are you just a religious consumer this morning? Repent of that. Come to Jesus. But if you're not there yet, I lovingly ask that you don't take communion this morning. It wouldn't make sense for you to do that. But now let's come worship King Jesus. Fix our eyes on him alone and worship him. Let's do that.